Welcome to Screen Looking, a podcast where close friends take a closer look at their favorite video games. I'm your host, Andrew Kuhar. This is episode 13. One of the first times the word PlayStation ever appeared to the masses, it was in a brief article from the New York Times dating back to June 1st, 1991. Back then, the story didn't make the biggest splash. It had to be dug up by Polygon in 2015 for us to even know about it. But had the story ran today, it would have sent a shockwave through the video game industry. Quote, The Sony Corporation said yesterday that it planned to enter the game market with a machine based on the latest Nintendo technology. End quote. To put that sentence into 2019 terms, it's as if Google started building a streaming infrastructure for the Xbox One, or if Apple was designing hardware for the Nintendo Switch. Yet, before the PlayStation's unmistakable Escher-esque logo would grace what is now over half a billion consoles, it had to start somewhere. And where it started was in the most unlikely of places, on an unfinished Nintendo console. Each decade produces its fair share of technological artifacts. The video game industry of the late 80s was no exception, and arguably, its rarest is the prototype in reference, the intended successor to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or as most know it, the SNES. At the time, its most interesting facet was the addition of a CD tray, the first of its kind in a traditional gaming console. But if you were to look down at the Nintendo-styled controller in your hands, you'd find two words that now hold a much greater significance, PlayStation. How those words arrived there, yet departed so quickly, is something we'll return to a little later. Because today, in episode 13 of Screen Looking, we're paying homage to the very system that allowed so many of the games that we love to even exist. From Sony's fallout with Nintendo, to their provocative designs and marketing, the PlayStation took a most peculiar path to putting its controller in our hands. A quarter of a century later, we're here to finally answer if turning the damn thing upside down actually helped or hurt our own PS1s in the long run. Whether you're a returning listener or just discovering our back catalog, it should be obvious how meaningful the PlayStation's legacy is to the majority of our conversations. As we near its 25th anniversary, the argument that Sony created its own success is easy enough to make, but it's the irony of its origins that's a little bit harder and actually quite fun to try and cut through. As always, I am here with my co-host, Alex Koval. Alex, welcome back. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody, every listener out there. Hopefully there are many of you. Yeah. Greetings, salutations. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got a few more listeners as well since last time we uh, we spoke uh, because we are a little more available on the internet to connect with now, aren't we? Uh, we are indeed. Um, we have a newly created Instagram account that we've been trying to fill with a backlog of our episodes. By the time this episode is out, we should be fully caught up. Um, and we also have a Twitter account. Uh, so on Instagram and Twitter, you can find us at, at @screenlooking. If you want to get in touch, we also have an email address, which is screenlookingpodcast at gmail.com. So feel free to send us any thoughts or just say hello or just, uh, you know, chat us up about your favorite video games or what you're playing. Uh, we will, you know, take all comments, questions and suggestions. We love yeah, that stuff. Definitely. And if you like what you have been hearing for, you know, however many months you've been doing this, it's been a good year now. 
Um, one of the best ways to support us is actually by uh, leaving us reviews. And one of the best places you can do that right now, because you know, most of our listeners are actually through Apple Podcasts. So um, how can people help us out in that regard, Alex? Whatever platform you listen to us on, you can leave us a review. Like Andy was saying, Apple Podcasts is one of our big ones. But yeah, you can also share with a friend, um, screenlookingpodcast.com, direct them to there, and they can choose whichever podcast service they want to listen to us on and um, join the conversation on Instagram. Yeah. Those would probably Um, be the best uh, ways to kind of help us out. Yeah, leave us a review. We will try to read you. I'll give you a shout out. Uh, If you do that, that'd be great. Much appreciate it. Say hi. (laughs) Cast us a line? No, there's. I I, I have no idea. Well, if you're Link. For a link, you can join cast our raid. Online. Yeah, join the raid. Yeah, join the group. Join the party. LFG. Yeah. LFG. If you're playing WoW Classic, uh, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. If I you have don't, no idea what you're talking about? <laughs> I have, I, what's WoW Classic, mm, Andy? I have no idea. I think you know. I do. I think I you're holding back. I think you're holding out on me. Yeah. My Warriors um, level thirty. I'm very guilty of <laughs> WoW Classic right now. So today, you know, a few episodes ago, episode nine. Um, gaming tastes and looking ahead is what it was called. Gave listeners a chance to get to know us a little bit better. Um, and one of the things we talked about in there was we alluded to some of the different episodes or kinds of episodes and uh, topics we wanted to talk about. Not as much as we like talking about games, you know, games have to be played on something, which is consoles or computers, PCs. So we're going to go back in time and uh, just go back to, you know, where everything started, the very, very beginning, very literally which is the very first thing we can remember about this console interacting with the PlayStation 1. Uh, Alex, I'm going to ask you to go first, actually, uh, to break things up here. Um, what is your first memory with the PlayStation 1? All right, friends and listeners, travel back with me in time to 1997, wherein lies my first memory with PlayStation Imagine, if you will, a dark and stormy night sometime in October. I'm sitting at my friend's house, and we boot up a game known as Resident Evil colon Director's Cut. I'm sure none of you are surprised to know that Resident Evil is my first PlayStation 1 experience, but... I don't think we've ever heard about this before. uh, It's very, uh, yeah, it's like, wow, this is brand, this is news, this is news to everyone. So we booted it up, and we found ourselves in the Spencer estate my 12-year-old brain was just blown away by the graphics, the sound, the ga- the harrowing gameplay, trying to survive a night in this horrible estate. Um, and we were going through and just like barely scraping by. And it was just like the most immersive, terrifying experience of my uh, young life. Um, and we had probably played it for five or six hours, um, just pausing to get like, basic nourishment but uh we made it through <laughs> so this is like one playthrough this is like just straight you, yeah one no, this night, is straight yeah. we, okay, pre- okay. we pretty much uh i think basic nourishment qual- qualified as like surge and like oh no like domino's pizza maybe um just like the basic the most base nutrients like we could put into our bodies um but basically we got to if any of you are familiar with the game, we got to the part where it was like the guardhouse. We just got back to the mansion for the second time. Yeah, you leave the mansion at some point, right? You, yeah. yeah, you leave the mansion, you go to the guardhouse, you beat the plant 42, you come back to the mansion. Mm-hmm. And 
you are greeted by the arrival of what can only be described as uh, beasts straight from the depths of hell. Um, they look like giant frogs with fangs, and they are ready to rip you to shreds. Um, they are called hunters, and my friend and I were not prepared for this at all, both emotionally, mentally, uh, at that point physically, because we've been pumping our bodies full of like you know just garbage food. <laughs> And so we were getting our asses handed to us and trying to find just any healing or ammo we could. And we ended up stumbling into this hallway with two ferocious hunters and the lovely Jill Valentine met her fate. Um, and I'm sorry to say that because my friend's brother had a memory card that was filled with God only knows what sort of saves but not resident evil saves when jill perished that was the end of our journey that night but it was such a legendary foray into early playstation gaming that i yeah. just it's cemented in my memory oh my gosh so so was this because were you uh <laughs> were you unaware of the ink ribbon system as like another facet of the gameplay at the time where you actually have to have an item to even save or was it just that the concept of saving having to intentionally save was like not a thing that people were aware of. I think it was. So we knew that the ink ribbons like were used for something and we, we found like the typewriters. I think it was just like there, it, we got some message that there was not enough like room to save. And my friend was pretty hesitant to delete any saves oh. because his brother was a fair, like probably six to seven years older than him and would hand out, a pretty thorough ass whooping if he had like touched any of his save data yeah so we were just in it just for the pure ephemeral horror we were just ready we wow. were just ready to dive in i mean that's yeah that's interesting because i mean i don't even know if the game would have given you an option to you would have had to know this before you started so yep. like the deeper in you get the worse it gets because you'd have to turn the system off to delete the saves but by turning it off you're you're completely destroying your progress yep so yeah i think that's really interesting and it's 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 a good memory to bring up for this topic just because it is so intrinsically tied to a new facet of hardware at the time and gaming consoles that wasn't previously there whereas with the super nintendo entertainment system or anything before that you had cartridges and the cartridges had storage on it so you didn't have to worry about that like each cartridge had its own bespoke saves for that game so you just pop the game in and you got your Mario saves, you got your Zelda saves, and they all go with each other. Um, and they're mutually exclusive from the, from the system. But with the PlayStation, because of how much, you know, you couldn't write to the discs because they were read-only. So you had to write right. to something else. So they sold these peripherals called memory card, these little sticks, and you put them in. And I mean, we, don't, we don't have them anymore. They, they, uh, they stopped doing that. Um, people can plug in external hard drives if they want today. But there's so much memory, you really don't have to do that. You can save stuff in the cloud and everything. So the fact that like this was a new layer of gameplay um, is really interesting. And it kind of gets back to like the the Metal Gear Solid uh, discussion we had in uh, episode 11. Um, just like how the, the games games are very much at the mercy of their hardware and they can reference them in, uh, in interesting ways. So that's a great memory. Yeah, well, uh, I feel like that's going to we're going to get into that a little bit deeper in terms of how the PlayStation eventually came to be, but I'm kind of curious. What's your first experience, Andy? Oh, 
Man, is it so, legendary? It might be. It, it has nothing. <laughs> so you know, yours is um, yours is I think the classic. You know, you're playing the game. You're either at Toys R Us, or you're at the demo station, or you're at your friend's house, and you're seeing a game and then you're starting to look at the controller and you're looking at what the controller is connected to. And it's this like sensory overload of like, I did not know this technology existed. Like I had that experience with the super Nintendo entertainment system with my cousin. But um, for me, the PlayStation, it was all about just getting the system, buying it. Um, so essentially my, my brothers and I, one of them has been on the show before Nick, uh, but we, uh, we decided we'd, you know, had enough of going to our cousin's house to play video games and we wanted to get our own system. Money was not easy to come by. Getting a $300 system was not not in the cards. You have to wait for a birthday or multiple birthdays combined or Christmas, as you would know, Alex. Um, yeah. And I think that for us, it was, it, you know, this system came out and we wanted it at a time. It was in the middle of the summer. And our parents basically said, if you want it, you have to pay for it. So what what are, you know, a bunch of... 10 to 13 year old kids going to do how are they going to get this money so we actually had a bunch of allowance and change and um old birthday cash and stuff that we just saved up and we had this this piggy bank that wasn't really a piggy bank it was more like a tiny vault you actually had like a padlock on the front you could open it and it was just like a miniature vault and so we threw we always threw our like extra money in there and we realized oh if we pulled our money we could get this thing. And we eventually got to the point where we got close enough. And I think my mom kind of filled in the gap there or whatever, like however much it was, but we got pretty close to the 300. And so we took this piggy bank that probably weighed like 20 pounds at that point. Cause it's filled with so much different kinds of currency. And we went all the way to uh, the micro center in Mentor, Ohio. It's the only one that was known of in, in the region or even maybe even the state. We went there and they, they were one of the only places that got a PlayStation right when it just started getting imported because, as we'll find out later, it sold like hotcakes, not easy to find. So you have to call them up and ask them. We get there and they say, okay, well, that'll be $300. And we dump this piggy bank on the counter. And there's it's a huge <laughs> empty store, one clerk, and he opens up the piggy bank and there's quarter rolls and penny rolls, <laughs> nickel rolls. There's wads of cash and he just looks at us and he kind of looks at my mom. My mom kind of shrugs like, they have the money. You got to count it. So this poor dude. <laughs> two, two things happened that day. A PlayStation was purchased and a man quit his job at Micro Center. <laughs> a, man, a man shifted his career in that very moment. <laughs> he was like looking at these little kids because we I was so small. I couldn't even look over the counter. So you just see this guy and you see his reaction. And he's like looking down at us. And he's like, it was like both like how dare you and like i'm so proud of you (laughs) (laughs) and and so he like goes back gets his manager and they're talking and i'm like do we not have enough money and they're like all right let's start counting so they because they didn't know if the rolls had the exact amount they counted everything it took like 15 minutes and eventually they're like okay we got it one playstation one we bought it with our own money the kicker was we don't have enough money for a game oh but thankfully, the PlayStation 1 came with a demo disc, and we were, like, all about to be in, like, tears. Like, we can't buy a game, and the games were, like, an extra, what, 40, 50 bucks or whatever. And there's so many cool ones on the shelf. And the, the demo disc, it was like, oh, it's got games on it. We'll just play that. And we played that demo disc into the ground. I mean, it was one of those things where you know the first level of every major game because they only give one level and 
limited characters like in Mortal Kombat and stuff. But I think we played the demo disc for like two months before we even had the money to get a game. Oh, those so, demo discs were life, man. They were yeah, great. So good. Um, and there's a lot of games on that demo disc that I think we're going to we're going to bring up later as notable mentions. But I think that that kind of loops back into Resident Evil because I think what we found out was that we could rent games because it was so much cheaper to rent them for a weekend and power through them. And I think that Resident Evil was one of the first games we actually rented and sat down and had a very similar experience to yours. I think that's, uh, if you listen to our Resident Evil 2 deep dive on the remake, you'll hear Nick talk about that memory uh, if you're curious. Um, but yeah, that's that's my memory. That was, dare I say, even more epic than my memory. So good job on that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and think about it too, $300 in uh, 1994 Wow, uh, that's that was pretty expensive yeah, back then. That's very true. Yeah, I mean that was it's like probably like around six, like inflation, probably double. You know, like yeah, six hundred bucks, something like that. Yeah, but that's that's our first touch points with the system. But I don't think most people really understand how fickle and fragile the process of the PlayStation even existing was. Yeah, so we kind of touched about on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about memory. Uh, specifications for games and and whatnot but the sony playstation has a kind of a interesting history in that it was initially supposed to be a new version of the snes nintendo had kind of partnered with sony back in around 1991 to create a cd-rom drive um, Mm -hmm. addition to the snes to sort of allow uh games to hold have additional memory like to make games bigger um and better basically partnered with them and we're going to create something called the nintendo playstation right and uh if you look out if you look out there you can you know find pictures of this thing online and it's it looks totally for the most part it looks totally different um it looks much more nintendo-y um it's got like kind of a cartridge slot and there there's actually a little sort of CD-ROM disk drive, kind of like the original PlayStation 2s had. But yeah, it has like a, a controller sort of reminiscent of the Super Nintendo controller. Yeah, very, very. So that's kind of where it got its start. I know like there's a little bit more to it than that. I don't know if you wanted to add anything, Andy. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that that's a really good summary. Um, and I think it's just, you know, just to like pause for almost a second and just ruminate on the fact that Nintendo PlayStation, I mean, that's like, it's like this is like an alternate universe. This is like it almost sounds like fan fiction for video game like console is a real thing. You can go to uh, and gadget and search um, Nintendo PlayStation. They actually have quite a few articles about this because they got their hands on one of around 200 prototypes that even exist. It's a really long story about how they got their hands on that and they even tried it. Uh, unfortunately, the disk drive didn't work because uh, there was some parts on the internals that were either disconnected or frayed or or fried Um, but the cartridge side did work so the idea was that the the cartridge would play snes cartridges as they they normally would and then you'd have the option that if a game was too big like uh, an expansion to zelda well that is going to come on a disc and you put that in the disc drive and you get your options of uh input um but in terms of like the story of how it even got to that point where those two logos were on the same piece of physical hardware um the way it really went was Sony basically was working with Philips to extend the capabilities of a CD-ROM drive. At the moment, it was either used for storing and reading data, just straight data, like computer software and whatnot, and you could install it, or audio, like with music. 
um, but they didn't have anything that could handle visual and computing data and audio all at the same time, like just all going synchronously, which is what a video game needs. It needs to read code. It needs to read art assets and it needs to merge all these things together. So they really wanted to just make, you know, a more powerful CD-ROM. Um, and what happened was Nintendo basically caught wave of this and Sony wanted to get into the gaming market and they saw this perfect fusion of, okay, well, you're working on the next piece of technology, the next quantum leap. We need it, as Alex mentioned, with the memory needs. Um, so basically Sony created a contract with Nintendo and they started to work together on this to create prototypes, which is where those 200 prototypes came from. And then what happened over time, and this is where the details get kind of murky, even the dates, like you mentioned before we started, Alex, like some of these dates even go as far back to the late 80s. Um, but really those three or four years before the PlayStation came out, they were trying to work a deal out and, you know, Sony just kept, as the contract was not getting finalized, Sony kept being like, no, no, let's finalize those details later is kind of the repeating story I kept hearing. And what ended up happening is Nintendo found themselves painted in a corner. Um, they basically found that they were getting cut out of the royalties and licensing fees that should go to them. And they just, they couldn't, Sony and Nintendo couldn't get to an agreement about, you know, say for instance, um, Nintendo decides to allow Sony to print a Nintendo franchise like Mario on a disc that Sony made and manufactured. Well, who gets the split of money on the sales of those discs? Because now Sony kind of owns a piece of something that Nintendo has intellectual property on. So it gets kind of complicated. It's like that's why Nintendo historically has always, you know, developed its own um, its own hardware, its own cartridges. Basically, Sony decided, even though some of these final financial legal you know, agreements weren't totally figured out. They wanted to announce this. Um, and so they just announced it. <laughs> and then <laughs> what the, as the story goes, Nintendo then immediately publicly called the deal off and decided to, I think, work directly with Philips on some kind of extension. Um, and that didn't quite work out either, because as we know, it took Nintendo quite a while to even add some sort of CD component to their systems, first being the GameCube uh, with the uh, mini disc option. But Basically, Sony broke off of this, right? And uh, that's what led to the merging of the words play and station. Originally, they were two words, and now they're one. But uh, I guess, you know what else? I'll just say the rest is history, because, you know, it is, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we. Uh, I feel like we got the brightest timeline, you know, like <laughs> somewhere out there in the darkest timeline, like, there's, a, there's a sort of amalgam PlayStation Nintendo system that plays like 3d like like basically there's no bloodborne there's no right uh final fantasy 7 maybe you know like there's it's like all these like nintendo franchises on a disc machine in my mind that's kind of how it goes it's just like we're playing like multiple versions of zelda and mario and there's no like there's all these games that didn't come to be because playstation like third-party developers never developed i mean to me it's almost like the darkest version would be that both nintendo and sony I mean, this very well could have been a huge blow for both of them because you can imagine the cost of developing this if it failed, say it released and it failed or say it released and there was a bunch of legal problems and people were getting sued left and right. You know, that can end a launch. Uh, That can really gut it. And this could have been so uh, discouraging for Sony. Like, what is this? Or it's, you know, kind of backfired on us. That could have been bad for them and we would have never seen another PlayStation. We may, you know, Nintendo's had a lot of... uh, ups and downs with their systems they've made some hail mary plays with systems like Wii and the switch um they've had some you know dips as well with other systems so 
you know, it's never perfect, but the fact that the PlayStation was born of this partnership with Nintendo is pretty ironic. Yeah, that's that's fair. Earlier, um, when you were describing kind of the prototype and just how much how much it looked more like a Nintendo system than what we recognize as a PlayStation system today, you know, PlayStation systems have um, a pretty cohesive line of design, both in the controller and, and in the system in a way. They have a very specific aesthetic, but this very first one is very distinct uh, for quite a few reasons. Most notably, actually, is the controller itself. Yeah, I mean, so basically the design of the PlayStation is such a, especially when you compare it to the sort of Nintendo variant, um, so unique, so different. With respect to the controller, um, what we had seen up to that point was the sort of SNES controller, Nintendo controller, Mm -hmm. Sega controller, um, which were all sort of flat and, you know, kind of very similar to almost like like an iPhone or something or like a smartphone. Sony had this brilliant idea that their controller was going to sort of semantically reflect uh, the things that they were trying to do with their system, where the system brings sort of a full 3D, fully 3D rendered assets to life. You know, uh, we see like, for example, Crash Bandicoot versus something on the SNES, which is kind of a flat 2D uh, rendering. Their controller itself was made to break into three dimensions. So like instead of a sort of flat controller, you have the two handles of the PlayStation controller actually extending kind of down and out to fit the hand, which, you know, a lot of people say that that's it's like one of the best designed controllers of all time. I mean, when you look at, especially now PlayStation's controllers are pretty much like the same. I mean, oh yeah, they've had variations over the years, but they've all kind of had that extended down and out, you know, handle. They've smoothed a little bit of the edges and made it fit to the shape of your hand, but all in all, like the layout of the PlayStation controller has maintained its integrity over what, like three iterations. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. 20 years or something like that. Yeah. So that's kind of one interesting thing. They just had that brilliant idea that's like pure, you know, a designer's like ecstasy right there. Just, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Design that lasts the yeah, test of yeah. time like that. Um, but also, what's really cool, I thought, was like that the PlayStation, the but the actual buttons on the PlayStation, the symbols, um, the geometric symbols and, uh, they had like an actual semantic meaning to them, which was supposed to sort of highlight what the buttons themselves would be used for across the games. So, for example, the triangle was supposed to represent like person's head, like their viewpoint, basically. Um, square was meant to symbolize a map, like it was kind of looked like a map. So a lot of times it would open up like a map or a menu. Yeah, yeah, like um, a document, yeah. Yeah, the circle and the X were supposed to represent like yes and no, respectively. Right, um, right. It's like an X is like a cancel button or whatever. And what I find interesting about this is that, you know, these were sort of like the initial design specs for like kind of basically what the developers of the PlayStation wanted the buttons to be used for. Right. And if you go back to like a lot of the older games, you will find that like the circle button is to is like the confirm button. Um, Mm -hmm. But as you go, and the X button is the cancel button. I think in my initial, my original copies of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy Tactics, which were made around like 97, those buttons like actually still hold, like the circle is confirm and the X is cancel. But I think the, as you go into the PlayStation's life cycle, the meaning of those buttons is actually switched. So circle is like the cancel button and X is the confirm button. I think on Final Fantasy I want to say eight, which came out in, I think, 98. 
I think the X button is actually a confirm button and the circle is a cancel. Yeah. Kind of interesting how those meanings actually got like overwritten as the PlayStation's like life cycle continued on. And you know what I think is is a big part of that, and this will get into something later with the the localization of the system. I actually I, I'm I'm fairly confident that the reason that that mapping changed was because when they ported this to America, Americans and, and the Western audiences were really confused um, by the rightmost option being the most positive option because it was like a red circle. It almost seemed like a negative, like like get out of something or take back the action I just took. Whereas because the X was closest to your thumb naturally and it was blue is a more like positive inviting color. It Mm -hmm. it was that I think most Americans thought, oh, the the bottom button, the closest button is going to be most often like, yes, do something, take an action, accept, confirm. Um, And then there's that weird kind of spatial logic, but also because you know, Eastern audiences, especially in Japan, when they read, they read from right to left, of course. So the rightmost option is more naturally the starting point linguistically. So I think that was also just deeply embedded in the culture. So when they brought it to America, I think they um, eventually in the newer issue issuings of, of like the Final Fantasy games, if you were to play a Japanese version, it would be inverse circle is always going to be confirm. Um, whereas X is going to, you know, when it came to America, I think they flipped those two. So interesting. Yeah. But uh, overall, yeah, the, 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 I mean, aside from cutting the cord literally on this controller for the PS3 and the PS4, it's really remained the same. I mean, you see if you took the controller and mapped them all in the same location and sort of faded between each one, you'd see like little tiny permutation changes. The biggest of all being when they added the, uh, the dual shock, the dual analog sticks, um, because that gave you discrete control over movement and camera, um, which Mm -hmm. was, pretty bold yeah it's it's incredible to think that that they nailed the design on the first try especially when you think about all the iterations that like nintendo had for their controllers like going from the snes to the n64 was like a night and day i mean the n64 gets a lot of flack for its controller design i don't want to jump too much into it but it's just like it was trying to accomplish everything, I think. But then, uh, like the N sixty four to the GameCube controller to the to the Wii to the Wii remote, like there's there's so much experimentation going on there, and I feel like all of those controller designs got like have some fans, uh, but a lot of detractors. Meanwhile, the PlayStation just held steady, and I mean, it's people just I think have taken to that design and yeah. love that design. Yeah, they just found something, and it's made porting games really really uh doable because you know even with the playstation 4 introducing the little touchpad area that's that's been like the biggest shift where if games don't support that you know it's kind of a useless space and it takes up so much room but if a game does support it and they decide to deprecate that feature or get rid of it suddenly a whole section of control is gone so it's like what do they do with that moving forward i think that'll be interesting to see how they um evolve that for the ps5 but you know, the console yeah. itself, there's there's almost not as much to say about the actual console hardware itself as it is this, the controller. You kind of look at the system. I mean, it's fairly simple. Um, that classic PlayStation gray, that kind of cream gray, is uh, something that's definitely come back in vogue a bit. I mean, there's a lot of, like, retro apparel, uh, especially now the 90s are, like, very much coming into fashion again, even in clothes. Um, the PlayStation did that 20th anniversary edition of the PS4 that was the exact same gray with the symbols embedded on it from the controller. It's like a nice little touch. So there's definitely a lot of callbacks to some of the very 
basic design elements of the PlayStation uh, in and of itself. The yeah. logo itself had been through a lot of iterations. Oh, and yeah. There's yeah. actually like a sheet out there that um, we'll link to in the show notes, but there's a lot of different iterations of the PlayStation mm-hmm. logo. And let me just say, in my personal opinion, there are a lot of like wonky, ab- super oh, yeah. abstract ones that I think just did not, for me personally, play. I'm very happy with the one that they went with in the end because some of these are like really far reaching um yeah i mean yeah another thing that hasn't changed early over time is the playstation logo yeah and that logo i think i think the theme that they were trying to go with again similar to what they were trying to convey with the controller is this sense of depth and perspective um Mm -hmm. just like how the p and the s are sort of interweaving on themselves sort of like a uh those escher paintings where you'll have like the staircase that is sort of unrealistically yeah. winding in on itself and is defying uh-huh. physics i think they were going for that there's that sense of the p and the s or this endless loop of three-dimensional perspective um and yeah that's the logo that they've even they've gone from the red and the iconic you know rainbowed colored red uh green blue and yellow to just plain white sometimes for simplicity's sake but yeah that's yep. held up over time as well um and then yeah i mean reset buttons used to be a thing i mean how often do you see a reset button on a system anymore yeah, I think one thing that was cool that I really hadn't noticed until you mentioned it, but the little like on the original PlayStation, there's a little line going from the from the open button to like the disc tray, which oh, kind yeah. of indicates like these, this button is like com- connected to this tray. And if you click it, it's going to open, which I thought was kind of cool, uh, like very simple way of like indicating the usefulness of a button. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Small little detail to make sure people weren't confused. It's like, I don't want to open this thing like yeah i don't want to get into yeah the it's kind of funny because so, like the flaws of the of the design of the actual hardware were kind of made manifest in the first couple of months like i guess they were pretty like the fans wouldn't keep the system cool enough mm-hmm. so the internal hinges to the disc lid would like melt and disc drives would occasionally like open up of their own volition <laughs> and the laser disc would lose focus and you'd be like in the middle of playing a game and oh just be yeah totally jacked like you'd, you'd be like well Hope you saved like 20 minutes ago because you're totally screwed now, which is kind of funny. And like, you know, uh, you'd have to like, well, (laughs) I kind of remember you like flipping your system over. Oh, yeah. Like (laughs) there were some definitely some uh, imperfections in the hardware design because same thing, the heat there. There is I mean, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, but essentially these are pieces of plastic that were around the laser that was reading the CD And if that plastic started to get hot, it would lose its reliability or its integrity, and it would cause the laser to have trouble being stabilized. So in order to stabilize the laser, you had to flip the console over and like use gravity to get the laser to just stay focused. So you'd have to like flip the system upside down, but then you couldn't get the disc out and you have to like hit like every time you turn the system, it'd like fall and slip because it was such a slick plastic. So you're like basically breaking your console just to play it. Um, <laughs> no joke. Like when we were kids, I, I seriously thought you were just being superstitious. I'm like, there's no way that that's actually helping the system. Like, how is that possibly good for the system? And then like now I'm like, oh, my God, like he was right. They the- were like. Yeah. They somehow discovered that this was like the way to get this system to work. Yeah, it was pretty precarious. Like there was even times where you had to go to the very dangerous 45 degree angle lean, which was like, <laughs> I don't even know why that worked, but sometimes the lean would work and you'd have to prop it up. And that's when it would start sliding because it couldn't hold its own weight. It was a mess. But uh, yeah, um, they had to like fix versions of the system later on. So the uh, little plastic molds were more reliable and more heat resistant so that wouldn't happen but not for us because we got it right when it came out because it was so exciting 
So it's like, yeah. <laughs> that's like the one con of getting a early, being an early adopter is you're going to inherit some of those initial design flaws. And this, this system was, you know, all this happened. They made all these decisions, all these intentional thoughts and design choices. And then the system just came out. I mean, Sony was, it was the first console they ever made. And how did people react to it? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, so it released on this in Japan on December 3rd, 1994 for 39,800 yen, which if you do the math, I, which I actually did, um, <laughs> looking back to 1995, how much the yen, how much yen the dollar was worth, yada, yada, conversion, all that fun stuff. It was approximately $400 um, for Jap- for the Japanese mm-hmm. population. Um, and it was only 100,000 units that were distributed to approximately 4,000 stores. Um, again, this is in Japan. They pretty much sold out instantly. Um, they sold out the day the system was released, um, which caused Sony to release another 200,000 units, which were sold before the end of the month. By the time that six months had gone by, there were 2 million units sold, um, which is pretty bananas. Yeah. Um, so the system was released in the United States a couple of months later on September 9th, 1995. And, you know, between this time, there was sort of like a gray market where people were, you know, getting PlayStations from Japan that were like yeah. being, yeah. people were like finding back channel ways to procure one of these things. Yeah. You would have half a year or so before you, anyone was, you would hear about it. You would read about it in yeah. magazines and you couldn't totally read it because it'd sometimes be in Japanese. And it's like, what is this? So, yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy, too, because like, you know, this system was competing at the time with the Sega Saturn, right? Was it the Sega Saturn or the Sega CD? Uh, good question. Or the same thing. I can't remember. Maybe <laughs> our, basically, our, our um, listeners can fact check us on that. That's OK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess like in 1995, the head of Atari, his name was uh, Sam Tremiel. He uh, threatened to report Sony to the uh, International Trade Commission if the PlayStation was sold for less than $300 because he said like, you know, you can't have the Japanese consumer paying this exorbitant price and then subsidize uh, the product and, and dump it in into the United States for $250 and kill us manufacturers. Right. It was like, you know, saying it was against the law, yada, yada. Um, so Sony launched the PlayStation for $299 <laughs> as opposed to $300, yeah. uh, which is pretty, pretty funny. But, um, yeah, I guess like on launch, the games that were available for it, there weren't a lot of them. No. And certainly no like really big titles. I would say probably in Japan, probably the actually in both really the main title that kind of caught people's eye that was probably the most popular title and certainly the most flashy was a game called Ridge Racer. Oh which yeah. Yeah. I certainly remember um just by virtue of people losing their mind over it. I am by no means a racing game fanatic, but I do remember the hype over this game and it just being like a beautiful game, um, especially when this game launched, you know, back in the day. Um, looking at it now, you'd be like, okay, whatever. But I think the reason that Ridge Racer was so mind-blowing to people is it, it was technically the first true 3D racing game. A lot of other racing games, even like Mario Kart and whatnot, when that came out on the 64 there's a lot of optical illusions going on where you would have maybe 2D characters on a 3D environment, like Cruising USA or something like that in the arcades. So it was sort of giving you the sense of depth in 3D, but not truly 3D, like a 3D engine running it. 
Um, I think Ridge Racer was just the first that actually felt like you were going down a track and you could look behind you and whatnot. Um, uh-huh. So I think that was kind of the big the big draw with that. Yeah, the, there were a couple additional games that launched with the PlayStation when it launched in the United States, namely Rayman, which is kind of a, a franchise that's exi- you know continued to exist over the years. Yeah, it's gotten some but recent, also, uh, recent critical acclaim. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's, gotten, it's aged well, I think, surprisingly enough. But uh, also Street Fighter the movie. Street, I mean, Street Fighter the movie is a rough watch, but I'm, the game looks equally <laughs> as rough. <laughs> Street Fighter the movie, the game. Oh, wow. Yeah, Street Fighter the movie, the game. Yeah. There were like a lot of mahjong games, which are just like kind of puzzly oh, yeah. crime crackers. I mean, there were there were some real deep cuts. Oh yeah, but yeah, none <laughs> but, of the ones that we remember, none of the ones no. that we're most fond of. And I would say it it, it probably didn't hit its stride until like ninety six ish. Yeah, when yeah. a couple of our favorite games come out came out, and then ninety seven and ninety eight were just like full steam ahead, pretty much. I think that's one of the things that's funny and like it's foggy with the memories is. I think as consoles have come out over time and maybe in the 2000s this happened a lot, you'd see consoles come out and people would go, oh, there's no system sellers. There's no like killer apps. There's no games that I want to get out right like there used to be. And really, like it's actually gotten better over time. I mean, you look at some of these initial launch titles, they're pretty rough. And nowadays it's like Breath of the Wild is launching with the Switch and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, there's some pretty generous offerings today and, and back then. Uh, it was not quite as rosy as we remember it, but yeah. eventually the, the the games caught up and uh, we've got a list of our top three, which might be obvious by this point if you're a listener. And then we got some honorable mentions as well. So we're going to do some rapid fire kind of elevator pitches for why these are what we think are the top three games for the PlayStation 1. And Alex, do you want to begin? All right. Yes. I want to say, I want to preface this by saying, these might not be the quote-unquote best games right. on the system, but they are our favorite games on the system. The yes, yes. We have the, our, our sort of crystallized memories. Um, so we're going to give our rapid-fire takes, and I'm going to start. So number one, Resident Evil. Wesker! Help me look for him, Jill. And don't leave this hall for the time being. This mansion is gigantic. We could get into trouble if we get lost. We should start from the first floor, okay? And Jill, here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you. Thanks. Maybe I'll need it. It's like playing an interactive horror movie it's freaking awesome at the bottom of it is sort of this weird mystery betrayal abound explosions gunfire you're using your scrappy wits to sort of solve puzzles and avoid peril from top to bottom immersive exciting action and it's no (laughs) surprise to me or should it be to anybody else that this game is still thriving as the commercial said if the suspense doesn't kill you Something else, something else will. will. Right. Very well done. All right, all right. Yeah. What's What's yours, Andy? Um, my number one. I'm gonna go straight from the gut, from my heart. Crash Bandicoot Two. Cortex Strikes Back. Step through, sir. That's odd. Nipped out your pockets. Huh. Are you wearing a watch? Oh, for goodness' sake! Every time I come here. After a short vacation, Crash is back. And this time, he's ready for just about anything. 
I am not comfortable with this. Whoa! Hello! Um, I think that even though I think my opinion on this maybe has changed a little bit with the uh, with the re-release of the uh, Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy, um, I remember when I played Crash Bandicoot 2, it was the Crash that allowed full use of the DualShock analog sticks. So you could move Crash in full 3D motion and not just forward, back, left, and right. Um, the graphics had just jumped a notch up just enough. The animation got so good. The um, the level design got really, really great. They introduced vehicles into this. Crash had a fuller range of motion. He had a fuller range of uh, moves and attacks he could do. He could slide. He could crawl. He could belly flop, not just jump and run. Um, the character models themselves looked excellent. There's some really great voice acting and storytelling in this one. And they just got really, really playful with the environments and the way that the game lets you choose which level you played first. It wasn't level one, one, level one, two, level one, three. It was, we're going to give you five levels. You can go to whichever one you want. So you could go to the fifth one or the first one first, and then you go to the next five, which were called the warp rooms. So the game was just a pure total refinement. It was, it was virtually flawless when it came out. Um, I think the difficulty spikes have, have uh, received some criticism over the years, but I was very fond of them. When I revisited this game, I felt like it was the clear standout. It was the best in the series back then, and uh, I always look back very fondly on the sequel to Crash Bandicoot, even today. Excellent. Alex, what is your number two? Let me just ask you all, do you love Shakespeare, but you wish it included more dragons and magic spells? Do you like having a job? How about 30 jobs? Well, if you answer yes to all these questions, that I might recommend to you Final Fantasy Tactics, one of my favorite games for PlayStation 1. to say about final fantasy tactics um it is an incredible story first and foremost filled with many lovable characters intrigue betrayal and laced with tactical combat that would make sun Tzu jealous uh i love this game so much i've synced so many hours into this game uh because it is just absolutely immersive it forces you to think it's filled with some of the most challenging fights that i've ever done especially as a 12 year old kid uh, I know Ryan mentioned this in our in one of our episodes. I think the Metal Gear Solid one. Yeah, yeah, it was that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of those fights are just absolutely incredible, um, and they're just there's character dialogue interspersed with them, and people espousing these like grand phil- philosophies where you're just like everything feels so that the stakes just feel so real and so deep. Everything just uh, kind of fires on all cylinders. And uh, one of my favorite things about this game is that it came out parallel to Final Fantasy VII, so it features a cameo by none other than everybody's favorite spiky-haired, Mako-infested protagonist, Cloud Strife, who you can recruit into your party and cast all of his awesome limit breaks (sighs) on 'er ne'er-do-wells. You bring him in from like another dimension or something? Yeah, you like poured him in with like using the sort of uh, Zodiac stones. It's pretty amazing. Pretty rad. Yeah, I love it. Well... 
I could literally not have thought of a better segue because my number two is Final Fantasy VII. Beyond the edge of reality lies a story of ultimate conquest, a story of war and friendship, a story of a love that can never be, and a hatred that always was. And now, the most anticipated epic adventure of the year will never come to a theater near you. Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII was groundbreaking. I mean, it's it's like, it changed how seriously people, I think, took storylines of video games in depth. And I think, you know, games just like Metal Gear Solid and Resident Evil are right up there with it in terms of giving games that extra AAA quality to them, uh, making these things feel like interactive novels in a way. And Final Fantasy VII was just, you know, you, you, you play the game, you start off, it does this giant epic zoom pan out from the main city Midgar with all the smoke billowing. This epic music is playing and then it crashes right in into this scene where a train is riding on the outskirts of the city and the spiky character that Alex mentioned, Cloud, does a backflip off the train and you immediately take control of Cloud without any cut, without any break. It's just one seamless motion. So to see a video game, which something happens a lot today now, but I feel like this was one of the first that did it. It goes from like the place the cinematic stops to gameplay and you just immediately run into a battle and you fight a few guards. You go on this huge ambush mission and, you know, uh, long story short, eventually the game expands from the city, from the slums of the city to the outskirts, to the highway, and then you're let out into the world and suddenly you're in a world map you're like, I can go anywhere in this world and this world's 20 times larger than the city I just spent three hours in. And your mind as a kid is like, I have a solid 40, 60 hours ahead of me and I'm a kid and I have nothing better to do. So this is perfect. Um, <laughs> so it was just like so exciting. And I mean, the game is such a tight, rich battle system. It has such an epic, unforgettable storyline, some like iconic moments in video game storytelling history that everyone who's played the game knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and it's just, you know, I, that game left such an indelible mark on me and, uh, yeah, spans three discs and, uh, the place, it very much has the PlayStation to thank for it, which we'll, uh, bring up later in our, uh, summary. Yeah. That's an excellent choice, man. Final Fantasy or Final Fantasy seven is just an absolute landmark of a video game. I mean, it's just forever embedded in video game history as one of the, best stories best games like oh yeah just from top to bottom i mean there's no it's no surprise it's being remade for my number three i fittingly have three words for you ladies and gentlemen <laughs> hyper combo finish if you know what i'm talking about then you'll know the game that is my number three choice is none other than marvel versus capcom oh One of the most exciting, well-tuned fighting games, I dare say, of all time. From which you can choose characters not only from the Capcom franchises, including uh, Street Fighter and Mega Man, but also famous Marvel characters like Captain America and Wolverine. And you can pit them up against each other or team them up to fight other people, which is amazing. But they also added something which is just this incredibly like dramatic 
amazing special move uh, feature where like you can, the game sort of, when you cast this move, like the game sort of freezes for a second and splits the screen into like a large, like beautiful rendering of your character in some awesome pose before you just unleash absolute hell onto people. And it is one of the most like epic ways of showing like a final move. I just love it. Uh, so for example, if you're like Captain America and you're like, oh, I'm going to use like my special move, you sort of everything freezes and it says like, uh, yeah, I forget what it says exactly. Stars and but stripes. Like, no, yeah. that's not. <laughs> yeah, he's screams. Hypercharging star. You just see like Captain America's like shield grow to like 10 times its size as he like flies across the screen and just yep. like delivers a killing blow. Um, but ultimately like this game is just super fast paced, but you know, unlike a lot of fighting games, the way that they tune um, move execution, it's actually very challenging and very difficult. Like, you can tell the difference between a pro player and a novice almost immediately because pro players are just something you have to study. It requires, like, such execution and finesse, um, which is something that I've always really loved about the game. Between the cast of characters, the pure epic execution of moves and combos, and the rewarding, like, challenging uh, skill required to pull off wins, I guess, I would say Marvel versus Capcom is definitely my number three. I just like, sunk a lot of hours into it fighting my friends and fighting just going through the arcade mode over and over again, trying to get Beating better. me to a pulp. Because <laughs> I, I always picked, like, I always picked, I mean, I love the combos because there was endless combinations. Like you yeah. could always, oh, yeah. you could, you know, pick Gambit and, you know, someone from Darkstalkers. You could pick someone, w was anyone in Resident Evil in that one or was that later uh, on? Not in the original, but in Marvel right. vs. Capcom 2, you could play as Jill, which right. is cool. When you play really well, it's almost like you're watching like a Saturday morning cartoon action scene. Because yeah. you're just seeing your favorite characters really well animated, just seamlessly go at it with each other. And it kind of gets at like w why people like marvel movies today to see all these characters come together in one unified experience and you know all these characters back then that were just you know in the back pages of like niche comic runs so yeah marvel's capcom a lot of great memories um playing that together my number yeah. three also a fighting game also shares the number three tekken three oh, oh tekken i knew three. it If I looked at the hours I spent on any game across all the PlayStation 1 games I played, this might be the one I spent the most time in other than Final Fantasies. Just because you're trying to unlock all the characters, you're trying to remember all the movesets. When you get into a new character, you're trying to fight your friends. And this was at a time, too, where there was no online component. So you're just really playing 1v1 against your friend in a room, or you're playing various difficulties of the arcade mode of the story. Um, and it was one of those fighting games that actually had a pretty good story of like each character had their own motivation. They had their own, you know, like goal they were trying to achieve at the end. Um, and I think, too, that the way the game allowed each character to represent different forms of martial arts and different cultures was really cool. You know, you had like judo characters and wrestlers, you know, kickboxers, and then you had more traditional martial arts and each character like represented that culture or had a totally different move set or a different tempo um i always was a fan of Jin, uh who had oh, yeah. like the cool Jin flame Kirk. flame tattoo going up his arm and had the sweet red gloves his move set was awesome and he was so balanced and had these awesome uppercuts and like lightning would course through his hand when he did them 
Um, very, very cool character and just a cool game. Just really like kind of oddly atmospheric. I always remember fighting in that dojo arena. Uh, and so you'd be in like jungles or you'd be in the street and there was just, it was such a, such, it had so much character and it felt like it was in the real world kind of, but it was also kind of globe trotting. Um, so it was just a very eclectic, very well-tuned fighting game. Wasn't, uh, you know, probably quite as fast paced as Marvel vs. Capcom because it was 3d and they wanted the characters to look like they were actually doing the fighting moves from their, um, style of fighting. Um, but yeah, Tekken three spent so many hours in that game and yeah. you could play as a little dinosaur. I mean, right. Yeah. Gone. Yes. And the bear breathe, breathe fire on you, fart on you. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> oh, Kuja. Who is your favorite character in that game? Paul? Oh man. Paul. Favorite character, Paul Phoenix. Yes. Hand down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I will never forget that man's like shouts. <laughs> he just had like the most iconic, like gruff shouts plus he had like a freaking blonde flat top and like full-on leather motorcycle outfit with flames on it i mean he was just like the loudest character all the characters yeah all the characters just had such personality man like and i love how each character had like their own little epilogue when you beat the campaign yeah, for them it was yeah, great it was they so did a cool. really good job of giving them their own like arcs and stories and i really appreciated that about that game yeah with that i think we're ready to move on to a couple of our final points some fun did you knows but uh <laughs> No, I think I think Andy, there's one, there's one game that still needs to be mentioned. It's no, I think we're arguably, good. Arguably, no, no, yeah, we got, yeah, we got everything. No, there is one game. It's arguably the most legendary game of the PlayStation One. Don't you era. do it? I'm not sure if you've heard. Don't of it. do it. Hopefully, you have, unless you've been living under a rock. But Alex. it is called Croc. Alex, Legend of the Gobos. Have How you dare you game? besmirch this list? There's a new adventure hero in games, Croc. Join Croc as he runs, jumps, swims, climbs, pushes, stomps, and jelly jumps his way through a breathtaking 3D adventure. Help Croc through 50 amazing levels as he faces hordes of villains and obstacles. From swarming sharks and giant bees to slippery glaciers and hot lava, Croc, Legend of the Gobos. For PlayStation, Sega Saturn, and Windows 95. Croc is arguably one of the best games ever made. It is it is similar in vain to Crash Bandicoot, which is oh my god, game, but arguably much, much better. It's basically like, so you play as an anthropomorphic crocodile whose sole mission in life is to rescue a race of beings known as the Gobos. Imagine, if you will, two cotton balls two brown cotton balls stacked on top of each other with a pair of googly eyes on them. And that's essentially what a gobo is. So you're this crocodile and you're on a mythic journey with a backpack. And in your backpack is stored liberation and hope (laughs) for a race of disenfranchised beings. And your sole goal is to unify them and liberate them from the tyranny of an oppressive government. Alex, Alex, can you, um, why don't you just... How how, uh, how many hours have you played of uh, Croc Legend of the Gobos? Approximately 25 minutes. But <laughs> in that 25 minutes, I've learned that this is arguably the best game of the PlayStation generation, possibly any generation. In fact, I think now that I, rec- I recall my friend's brother playing this game, this is my first exposure to it. And I'm pretty sure the reason we weren't able to save any of our saves on the Resident Evil were was because that memory <laughs> card was just multiple croc legend of the gobo saves at different points in the game so he could consistently relive 
each epic moment in Croc's journey. I mean, if you want to relive a nightmare um, over and over, yeah, absolutely. Um, How dare you? I Croc, Croc is a Croc is a role model and a hero, <laughs> and he. I mean, basically, the ending of the game, he establishes a commune that these gobos can live in and work in and achieve their goals and their dreams in. And uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it's an anti-capitalist message of, of freedom and free market. And it's a it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I wept openly um, at the open at the uh, ending of Croc. Well, I will say this. Um, Hillary and I, who's you know, Hillary's been a, a guest on the show. Um multiple times including our last from the archives one we had the same thought i mean not i'm not going to go to the extent that um this you know we, we wanted to relive this story of liberation we we thought oh remember croc yeah i have great memories of croc let's go find it at a used game store we got it could not have regretted that decision more more instantly because this game is so unplayable it is so antagonistic towards the player i can't believe that kids dealt with this game and not only dealt with it but loved it and like embraced it uh, as you are embracing it alex i um, wholeheartedly embrace it <laughs> we're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this oh I think. we're gonna yeah this is gonna be a long-standing debate i think we're gonna have to revisit this to quote <laughs> billy madison at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought i award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. Oh, Jesus. I'm crocking up over here. Um, this is the uh, last um, episode of Screen Looking Podcast. <laughs> um, you know, 13 is an unlucky number, so I guess we should have seen this one coming. But anyway, so we got a few. We talked about one of these, about the whole flipping the council. But there's some fun did you knows about the PlayStation, either hidden features or things that maybe weren't very much available to public knowledge because the Internet wasn't as... You know, it wasn't as widespread back in the late 80s, early 90s, and games weren't being covered as much on the internet as they are now. Um, Alex, do you want to go through a couple of these with me here? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, did you know, Andy, that the PlayStation, because it could take CDs, was also a CD player? But not only that, it could play, you could put in certain games, like, say, Castlevania, Symphony of the Night, or Cool Borders. You could throw those games into a CD player. They would be read like a CD, so you could listen to the game soundtracks on a CD player. Okay, so I knew about the PlayStation doubling as, like, if I put a burned CDR into the PlayStation, it would play it. I think it had some kind of visualizer with it, Yep. some kind of equalizer. So, yeah, mm -hmm. if you didn't have, like, a Discman or something, you could play it, and the music would come out of your TV, which was pretty cool. Um, but I did not know about putting a PlayStation in, like, so, like, if I opened up my computer tray and put it in it would play the music yeah. off of it mm -hmm. wow that's yeah. amazing like play it like it was a cd pretty cool that's really cool so it basically came with the soundtrack yeah huh interesting and like you know for some game like castlevania that has bloody tears i mean shit yeah that's some that's some definite like drive around in your car and like just rock out music <laughs> that's funny i think the uh, the other thing that's cool about the the cds is just the fact that when the playstation first came out because the cds you could like you know, if someone pirated a game or like burned a, a PlayStation game, nothing was stopping them from making an exact copy of a game. This is one of the big reasons Nintendo really didn't want to go through with this CD component because they were they knew this was going to open the floodgates up for potential piracy. So um, PlayStation eventually had to manufacture their discs to have some sort of region locking on them. So there was like a string of 
code specific to the disk itself, the hardware of the disk that no one else could read or write. So if you're, you know, a normal CD burner couldn't write that information. So there's information specific to Ameri- the American audience, Western audiences for European and for uh, um, Eastern and Japan. Well, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, just the scrappiness involved with having to like, <laughs> you have a system already out and you're like, oh, this is happening and we need to respond appropriately. Right. Pretty clever. Right. The one uh, story that I think is similar to that uh, that's really clever is one of the ways they got Crash Bandicoot to run at such a consistent frame rate was the game took up so little memory and they realized that if they put the game if they put like a giant file on the disc it would push the the, the content of the Crash Bandicoot game more and more towards it was either the center of the disc ring or the outer outer end I can't remember where it started or ended but either way they were trying to force the actual game content to go to one of the extreme ends of the disc because one end spun so much faster than the other end because you know the circumference changes. So as it's spinning, one side is doing more rotations per minute than the other. So they put a giant empty file on the disc, forcing the game to be on one of the ends. And that way the game would run like three times as fast all the time. So that way they were able to get the game to run like really, really well. And that was one of the reasons the game like looked as good as it did. And they were able to get as many textures and like polygons on the screen without it crashing or like dropping frame rates. Wow, so, that's incredible. Yeah, there's um one of the creators of the series, Andy Gavin, has a has a huge like 13 part making of Crash Bandicoot, and that was one of the like highlight moments of. I would have never guessed that you did that to make your game run better. Like you hacked the way the har- the software was written to the hardware to get it to run better. You know, one of the last things that you mentioned. You mentioned that you could pop in regular music CDs, CDRs onto the PlayStation. It would know that it had music. The weird thing is like you had to get into, how did you even get into the PlayStation menu? Because you would put the the game in and it would just start. You If you had a disc in the PlayStation, it would go from the PlayStation loading screen straight to the game. You didn't have to do anything. And nowadays you're, you're, you have to go through how many menus. So how did you even get to the menu on the PlayStation? Didn't you just have to like not put a game in and load it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh man, old school. Yeah, you had to like hit the power button, not put a disc in, which like that's the only thing you can do. So how would you ever know to not do that? Yeah, but when you got right. in there, that's how you access. Yeah, that's how you accessed your memory card data mm-hmm. and stuff. You'd have to like load it up without. That's right. Yeah. Dang. Pretty wild. Yeah, pro fact. And uh, the last thing I think that's worth mentioning is um, the dev kits that PlayStation put out for people to test development on. They had these like really cool. There was like a matte black PlayStation one and a, like a really a very like crayon blue PlayStation. Um, yeah. This was pretty interesting. This I, was, I didn't know about this, this. No, this blew my mind. I had never heard of this. It was called the Net Eurosi. Um, It was a matte black PlayStation that Sony provided for people who were interested in game development. A lot of these actually ended up going to universities that taught teaching programming classes um, or game development classes. I mean, at this point, there wasn't a lot of universities that did this. There were a couple of these sent there. And, um, you know, obviously other ones were sent to people who had sort of like a an itch to get into uh, amateur game development. But they were around like seven hundred and fifty dollars, which is pretty pricey, almost twice the price or over twice the price of a PlayStation. But they were packaged with you know, the the sort of matte black PlayStation unit that could be used for uh, software debugging. And they also came with a serial cable, which could connect up to a personal computer 
so that the uh, user could like write the computer code, compile it, and then send the program to the PlayStation and play the game on the PlayStation. It also came with like a CD that contained like development tools, kind of like an SDK. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. Huh. And to sort of limit like, you know, because obviously, I mean, what you're probably all thinking is, did Sony want people creating like indie games and like selling them? Because I mean, obviously, that's what I would do. I mean, hell, it'd be really cool to do. Obviously, like, you know, Sony needs to exercise some sort of quality control over the games that they put out because who knows what people could be putting into these games. So they actually didn't allow developers to write their games to a CD. The game had to be could be put onto the to the units themselves, the net Eurozies, but and played through them, you know, because of the hardware limitation, the games could only be so big. I think it was like three, three MB. Wow. Um, yeah, as opposed to the storage that a CD could hold. So like 700, a lot of these games, yeah. yeah, a lot of these games ended up being like pretty small, simple games. Kind of think like Pac-Man emulators, or um, actually one of the games actually looked very similar to if anybody's ever played Hotline Miami, um, kind of like a top-down oh, yeah. mm-hmm. shooter. Yeah, there's a game like that which I thought was kind of cool, but yeah, really interesting fact about PlayStation. Yeah. You could actually, Sony allowed people to sign up for this sort of online forum where you could post your games and other people could download them and put them onto their systems and play them. So it was sort of like this really tiny network of amateur game developers sharing games and playing each other's games, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's sweet. I mean, that's. I had no idea this was going on at the time, but. Yeah, that's pretty. And I mean, now now they're super rare. They sell for like thousands of dollars on eBay. Of course. I mean, that's that's really ahead of their time. Um, much more familiar to what you see today where there's a lot more free sharing of uh, ideas and uh, development. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's really all. It's very interesting. A lot of stuff we didn't know ourselves, so we hope there's some people out there that this is all new to as well. Um, you know, in closing, where is the PlayStation 1 today? What is its legacy? How do people remember it? I mean, it's we're on PlayStation 4 for a reason. Um I think the original PlayStation had approximately 3,000 game games made for it um, and reached almost, I think it was like 960-some million in sales, which is oh, wow. absolutely huh. incredible. For me, the, the big takeaway is that this system, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but the system almost didn't exist. And it just seemed to kind of be this happy accident that, sony sort of forced into being from like sheer will um and you know sony's got a, a track record of sort of blunders here and there but i mean i'm certainly super grateful for this system and all of the memories it's provided and i mean so much of our shared memories oh and yeah our friendship is through this the experiences the system's provided so pretty incredible yeah i mean this year's e3 and it's not just me saying this there are headlines out there that say you know the biggest game at e3 Final Fantasy 7. You know, a 21-year-old game being the biggest game amongst huge heavy hitters. But it's really important here because the reason it even exists is because the PlayStation exists. It was supposed to be a Nintendo a Super NES game or was actually arguably going to be on the N64. Basically, Square got overambitious and they made the game too large and had to go, uh, this game isn't going to fit on your cartridge for the system. So we need to have that disc tray that you're working on. And Nintendo is basically like, yep, that's not happening anymore. So we don't know what to tell you. And that created a rift between the two companies as well. And 
you know, the history wrote itself there. I mean, they had no choice but to go to Sony and it's a, it was a Sony exclusive. It was forever in the cultural mindset associated with the PlayStation as the PlayStation is this place to get the biggest, you know, most epic, elaborate experiences that you haven't played before. And that's exactly what Final Fantasy VII um, was intended to be by Square. So they really had no other choice but to put it on the PlayStation and had the system not come into existence Final Fantasy VII may have never come into existence either. You know, this could have been a fold for a lot of different companies. Um, Yeah. So I think it just shows, one, that the serendipity of this council, uh, it's a a really great choice of words there, Alex. Um, The serendipity of it happening allowed this ripple effect for all these new franchises, these new stories, these new creative endeavors to come to light and be fully realized. And they were so good and they, they left such an important impact in gamers' minds and in uh, the medium itself, and we're so influential that people really want to see these come and be their best self today. You know, what would they look like today? We can all use our imaginations, but the demand is there. Um, so clearly, people are really, really still fond of that era, um, and it hasn't gone away. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot more to the story than maybe we remembered as we've discovered throughout our conversation today but this was a very fun trip down memory lane alex thanks for going down it with me uh we've got two fairly kind of nostalgic episodes back to back here with the archives one and then this one but we were really looking forward to doing this one for quite a while Um, we're glad we got to do it now and uh, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you got something out of it learned something you didn't know before uh, gained a new appreciation uh, for something you may have been enjoying for all sorts of different reasons throughout your entire uh, childhood and young adult life. And we hope you'll stick with us and tune in to the next episode. As we got the fall season upon us, we are going to be doing our second annual seasonal episode, and that is going to be Iconic Spooky Worlds. Yes, right up my alley. And we may be asking for some audience participation on this one, so... Keep your ears and eyes tuned to our, you know, Instagram, our Twitter, and uh, just be ready to volunteer because we're going to need some some people to send into the uh, to the spooky mansion. Oh yes, and if anyone out there wants to uh, send us a thesis argument for why Croc Legend of the Gobos is the greatest <laughs> game of its generation, our email address is open: screenlookingpodcast at gmail dot com. I will read them, and I may respond, but I am in no way obligated to agree. Yeah, I mean, I think the game speaks for itself, but whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks for tuning in to episode 13 of Screen Looking. If you enjoyed yourself, we'd love if you would share this episode with a friend, share it on social media, and or leave us a review from wherever you tune into podcasts. And if you're looking for an easy way to spread the love, be sure to look up our current digital hub at screenlookingpodcast.com. I'd like to thank my co-host, Alex Koval, for joining me, and of course, for all of his hard work with the research and format of today's episode. A lot of effort went into this one, and I could not have done it alone. Last but not least, all of the wonderful bumper music featured on today's episode was graciously permitted by their producers, including Mikkel, Orchard High Clips, and LZLS, respectively. You can find links to each of them and their channels in our show notes. Other music throughout this episode was courtesy of the official soundtracks to their respective video games as they were introduced. And speaking of show notes, if you'd like to dive even deeper into today's topic, you can find all of our references, links to old commercials, and more through them. 
Once again, I'm your host, Andrew Kuhar. Thanks so much for sticking with us all the way to the end here. Take care and happy gaming.